0: Which part of your brain's working at any given moment? My guest today is Clint Adams. Clint wrote Lighting the Blue Flame, and it's all about working out whether it's the emotional, reactive part of your brain that's working, or the smart, measured, nuanced part of your brain that's working. He's a former policeman, he's a psychologist, and he's a really insightful diner, and you're really going to enjoy this chat. Welcome to the Reset Podcast, Clint Adams. all right welcome to the reset podcast mr clint adams is it good being you i think it is i hope it is <laughs>
1: nice to be here luke
0: thanks yeah, for having good me to have you mate it's been we were just talking before we started that it, we seem to be weaving in and out of the same same groups and never actually managed to get to see each other so it's nice to actually meet online here and and have a chat so yeah i agree totally agree but i'm loving i'm loving some of the work you do and um I guess the thing you're most known for is lighting the blue flame. Can you can you tell our listeners what lighting the blue flame means and what that's all about?
1: Yeah, look, um, I guess put it into context. So I've worked as a police officer, studied psychology, and and through my police career I had access to seeing obviously a lot of bad things if you want to call it that, but also being in people's houses, obviously as a police officer. You don't often get called to houses for, for good news. You've got to go and do Things and arrest people and and that kind of stuff. So, unfortunately, you get to see these young children who, and for you know, for whatever reason, their their parents uh, aren't great role models, and and sometimes the parents have done nasty things to the kids as well, which which you know amplifies all that. And 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 the downside to that is there's risk factors to these young kids then growing up to be good citizens and and contributing society because you know as you know there's there's a lot of um, that massive influence of that parents early on can, can be a, a, a lot of issues. And, and certainly, you know, having been in mental health like you have as well, um, you know, we know that, that certain things can trigger or more likely to end up in in poor mental health or anxiety or depression and that kind of stuff. And, and early childhood trauma is definitely one of those. Well, those
0: adverse childhood events are a massive. Health Absolutely. Later on and stuff, haven't they? The science on that is amazing.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and a big part of that is kind of where, you know, as I went through my career, I became a counsellor, left the police, went back to the police to work as a counsellor and worked in, in program development stuff with the police. So over the years, I, I kind of used a lot of my psych background and, and early counselling work to help adults in, in the workplace. And I did that for many years in you know people and culture kind of roles and and change management roles and that kind of stuff and then over the years I probably got right into the health and well-being using mental health more It uh, was probably early on it's probably a bit more um, known now but back you know in the early 2000s that this wasn't something that a lot of companies were doing so I ran something which I I call red brain blue brain training which okay. was focusing on the amygdala driven emotions which I called reg red brain just to kind of make it a bit more simple for people to understand. For me, it's about making it practical for the guys on the ground at the work level and, and that kind of stuff. So talking about neurotransmitters and all that kind of stuff. They don't, want, kind to of, they don't want to hear that jargon and that crap. So exactly. Yeah, okay. So I simplified it and just called it red brain, blue brain. Blue brain being the prefrontal cortex where we can focus. If someone's in a PTSD state, for example, and they're constantly, you know, feeling angry, feeling sad or feeling fearful based on whatever happened in in that event, then they're literally getting stuck in what I call that red brain environment. So they literally have this loop of, of, you know, neurons wiring and firing together and they have a habit of how they're thinking. So for me, it was about how do we get them to change that focus from red brain into blue brain where they're thinking of solutions, um, the body chemistry is changing by focusing in that space because you're not in red brain. Red brain's obviously that fight or flight kind of yeah. normal arrangement where you know the blood's going from your brain into your muscles, getting ready for fight or flight. What I'm trying to do is kind of reverse those gears a little bit and get them focusing on something that'll pump blood into the bigger part of the brain, as you know, the amygdala is a very small part of the brain. And obviously, the prefrontal cortex is a lot bigger. So, it needs more blood to oxygenate that part of the brain. So, it's kind of there's a, there's a chemical reason for it. And then there's also a practical reason about where you're focusing and what you're looking at in terms of solutions and that kind of stuff. So, that's in kind of where the red brain sort of state, you, you really uh-huh.
0: do become defensive and you become dumb, don't you? That prefrontal cortex doesn't work anymore.
1: Correct. It does shut down, and 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 like you say, the focus. Like the, you know, there's there's a lot of specific things that happen in that cascade when you go into that amygdala driven process. You know, as you said, you're, even even just your um the way the, the the eyes are working, there's no periphery. You're very focused, so you can't see things, and so that all has implications to your point around it not working at its best. And so you know, as a cop, that's the other thing, right? When you a cop, you see people that do stupid things in the moment of anger. Mm-hmm. Um and then they've got years and years to have to reflect on that. Oh, if I had made a different decision but you know they they're, they're in that emotion and it just takes hold and a away they go and they make stupid decisions so yes hundred percent so, so
0: your old brain's that amygdala driven fight or flight I call that old brain stuff um that yeah uh, it is it is that you know the the red zone and then the blue zone is the thingy of it I really love the idea of sort of connecting those two parts of your brains and having the old brain and the new brain working in harmony so it's almost Correct. like we we need a purple brain. We kind of need the, <laughs> the two colours to come together, but but I guess that's yeah. where, when you when you're working with the blue flame, isn't it that you're actually thinking about things more deliberately?
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's creating that space to not act in that particular moment. The best way I've heard it described is. Um, Joe Dispenza talks, and I talk with unconscious, he calls it unconscious mind and and conscious mind. Similar kinds of things. When it's unconscious, it it just kind of pops in there. The thing about the amygdala driven part of the brain is not verbal, so it sends you a feeling. And when you feel that way, that's how we tend to act. And, And unfortunately, a lot of times we don't recognize that we can feel it, experience it, can slow it down for a sec, and then actually be deliberate about it. We tend to go, action. Sorry, feel and then straight into action, and so yeah. you know that that's kind of the, the it's important. It's
0: Frankel idea in *Man's Search for Meaning*, isn't it? Where he, where you want to create a gap between your stimulus and your response, and correct, and to build that gap. And uh, yeah, how do you how do you teach people to to sort of build that gap between getting that that red brain going and and making sure the blue brain gets on board to make the decisions? How do you get them to build that
1: gap? Yeah, well, a while ago, when I was still with the police, as not as a police officer, but doing program development stuff, we we really focused on. And this is when I worked in Victoria. So at the time, Victoria were having a lot of police shootings where they would overstep the mark. With it's a bit like the Black Lives like Matter the issue.
0: Wars and all of that sort of stuff.
1: Yep this was this was early late nineties two thousands. Yeah, well, it's in the middle of that, isn't it? Yeah, right in the middle of those things. And so wh- one of the things that Christine Nixon was fairly new um, to the commissioner role, and she wanted to make a lot of changes, but part of that was about how do we how do we get our officers to do exactly what you're saying, where in the moment of, you know, you're blueing with someone, they're, they're intent on hurting you, you're intent on arresting them or whatever you're doing. And so how do you keep yourself calm in that moment when, you know, it's hitting the fan, so to speak, and then the person de-escalates in, um, their threat level. So you technically have to, you can't use disproportionate force towards mm-hmm. someone. If they're coming at you with a, a rubber knife and you shoot them, well, that's excessive force, right? If they're yes. coming with a real knife and you shoot them, okay, you can kind of weigh up that argument. But you've got to make those decisions really quickly because, yeah. you know, it's right in front of you. So part well, that, of the the de- red part of your brain
0: makes those decisions quickly, doesn't it? But they're not very nuanced and they, they can't see the shades of grey and, you know, Correct. They have, they're on or they're off. They're going really quickly. Correct. To so, how so, there's teach people to, to utilize that when you need it, but then get that blue
1: brain in there as well. It's a really in that sort of life and death situation. That's really hard. It is. It is very hard. A couple of things that, and, and I mentioned briefly about when you're in red, how do you keep yourself in blue? And, and one of those things is to ask questions of yourself in the moment. The other thing that's really important, and the reason for the asking the questions part, what sort is of like, questions are we talking? What, what? Well, I think you if give me an example. Well, one example is why is this person so angry towards me right now? So even me asking that question means I have to use my blue brain because if I go into red brain and, like you said, if I'm in red brain and he or she's in red brain, we're more likely to end up in in an argument or, or something escalating. So I can't actually deliberately influence that person, but I can have a better effect if I'm calm, I can affect how I feel. So part of that is about practising some of that. Like we all do it every day, little things like like I'm, I'm a shock and road rager when it comes to people cutting me off, right? I yell you? at people. You're I the am. king
0: I'll... of blue brain, man. You're not meant yeah, a yeah. road rager.
1: No, but, hey, we're all human, right? And so this is the point, right? It's not about, you know, years ago I probably, if a guy did the wrong thing, you'd probably think of getting out of the car and having a crack. But I certainly <laughs> don't do that anymore. I'll probably, I'll probably get angry and i go okay calm yourself now clint and so part of learning do you, you know, do that do you talk I, to yourself a hundred percent the science 100%. on that
0: is quite amazing um yeah i heard your thing on
1: was it pablo your yeah, Carlo yeah yeah carlos sorry yeah. i knew it was well, a Carlo, bloody... that
0: takes it next level that's almost like a fourth <laughs> person it's like yeah well
1: yeah, no, well, I'm a bit the same. I, I call mine LJ. It's a name I gave. Um, I won't give away the person's name, what the J stands for, but effectively okay. it was someone who used to piss me off a lot. And so <laughs> I, I, I kind of um, look at him as, as your silent friend who can take you to really, really bad places and then he can also take you to really good places. Well, but, I have one of them um, as
0: well. I actually reckon if you if you think of Carlos as being the superhero version of me, I have uh-huh. another one called Daryl, who's his nemesis, and Daryl's the one that tells me <laughs> I can't do stuff and all the reasons why things won't work. And you know, yeah. you know you've got to kind of that little voice in your head that tells you you can't. You've got to yeah. be able to have a chat to him too and sort of say, you know, thanks, Daryl, I appreciate that, but yeah, you know, yeah, I'm going to go this way.
1: Yeah, and, and the beauty about that is. Um, you take charge of it. That's the difference. And, um, you know, Joe Dispenza in one of his books, I can't remember which one, I think it might have been You Are the Placebo, he talks about it being, again, unconscious and conscious, about it being a, a wild horse where, you know, if you just let it go, it could take you somewhere great, but you don't know because you're actually just letting it run free. But if you actually yeah. rein it in and have a bit more of a deliberate um, approach to where it'll, it'll go wherever you want it to go, but if you don't take charge, it'll just choose itself. So, you know, um, and 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 you know, kids who, who've had that childhood trauma, they build up um, automatic responses to fear and that kind of stuff, and so they kind of don't know where they need to go and how they can do it. And 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 I, I guess you know, we were talking about unconsciously incompetence in before around. Um, you know, one A of the things. Combination of words.
0: So being <laughs> unconsciously incompetent.
1: Yeah, I wrote an article recently on on parents who, because one of the things I, I run when I'm talking to adults. I'll run these sessions, red brain, blue brain sessions. And they come up afterwards and go, wow, well, I didn't know anything about myself and how I think and how I form habits and that kind of stuff. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that gives me a lot of insight to say, well, technically you're unconsciously incompetent in this. If you're going to be, if you're a parent or a grandparent and you, you don't even know about this stuff in your fifties, how are you going to help, you know, your eight or nine year old kids who are coming up, who are dealing with some of this stuff and you know, if, if our only position as a society is to say, oh, let's send them to therapy and that kind of stuff, um, I think we're missing the point a little bit. You know, the yeah, best yeah. time to to help people is before they have problems. And, you know, you know you're know, you never going to stop anyone from having trauma. There's there's going to be no one over the age of a few days that has got no trauma in their life. It's, mm-hmm. it's just part of being a human being. So, you know, equipping people and and being deliberate about making them consciously incompetent when when you know you're not competent with something you, you go wow i gotta go find out more about this stuff well you, you but, know all about the dunning-kruger effect which i i just love the concept
0: of dunning-kruger effect For for those that don't know dunning-kruger is basically that people who are really dumb don't realize how dumb they are and people who are really smart think that they're just normal and um <laughs> yeah, and it's, okay. it's exactly what you're talking about with the um with the you know, unknown incompetence, it's it's um, yeah, it's exactly how that works. So you know, the, yeah, you've got to be a little bit patient with those people, I guess.
1: Of course, and look, it, sometimes it's not necessarily yeah, it. it's 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 sometimes just ignorance of what's out there. I, I use myself as a good example. I actually I, I did a science degree in psychology many years ago in the eighties. I finished it in the nineties, and then I did um, a postgraduate diploma in rehabilitation counselling, so true counselling at Sydney Uni was the best uni at the time in Australia running these Mm -hmm. programs. When I finished that program after two years, and this was involving pracs and going to Sydney and doing all those things, I still felt incompetent as a counsellor. I really didn't feel um, that I'd learned enough and that I was able to then just suddenly start putting this into practice and talking to people, even though I was qualified to do it um, and I was working in the field, which made it even more scary, um, I really had to go and find more information. I went outside of what I learned at university. I was reading, you know, uh, research papers that hadn't kind of gone mainstream and that kind of stuff. And I was reading books back then, you know, even even stuff like Silent, not Silent Lamb's, um, Mind Hunter by um John Douglas, which is all about profiling and stuff. I was mm. really wanting to to enhance what I was doing because I just didn't feel that the counselling model was enough for patients or do you feel if it's is
0: if it's evolved now and it's it's getting better or do you still feel like it has i i i get the feeling with a lot of that counseling stuff that they're just itching to try and put someone in a box and i want to tag you with this and then it's almost job done do you, do you get that feeling a little bit as well
1: I think one of the issues I do I agree. I definitely agree. I think one of the issues that I found and, and I've I've got a few friends that work as psychologists and, and people that have worked in counseling roles and all that kind of stuff. And and one of the issues I guess I had, and even when I was doing it, was you're always one on one, or mostly one on one. There's mm-hmm. programs obviously out there where you have groups and stuff. But we don't live in an, on an island and, and and involving other people and understanding that stuff. Because a lot of times the other people is what's contributing to your problems as well, right? Like if you if you're surrounded by people that aren't actually enhancing what what you need to, to get out of life and, and the um, the experiences that you're needing, especially as a child, it's even more difficult. But even as an adult, you know, sometimes we don't realise the patterns that we're stuck in and we're attracted to the same people that actually don't do us any good, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. So so there's a lot of Different elements that come into it. I like to think that um and, and the other thing is lots of different um psychological theories, like you know, they talk about gestalt theory and and you know using NLP and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. People who tend to focus on just one modality, if you like, they just stay in their zone and they think that everyone else is wrong, kind of stuff. I'm a bit different. Yeah. I go there's there's many ways to the top of this mountain. Some people it's a find bit like religion diets when you get people you yes. know they're a
0: vegan, all the vegans want to do is preach to you about how good, you know. Vegan, <laughs> vegans are like pilots. How do you know someone's a vegan? They always tell you. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. And I guess it can be a little bit like that in that sort of situation too, can't it? They? They, it's almost, a you know, a, when you got one hammer,
1: everything looks like a nail. Correct. Correct. Very much so. And, and I was probably a bit like that with Red Brain when I first go all the way back to maybe 2003 or four when I first introduced it. I was heavily focused on, on what I thought was the right way. But then as I've explored more, and I guess this is part of it, right, as a, as a counsellor, I think you need to go and look at more things even though you, you think this is the way. And so as I've learned over the years and, and the more I've read about stuff that's kind of challenged my own thinking, I've gone, wow, okay, now I can, like, it's not saying what you're doing can you is wrong. give me wrong. an example
0: of that? Something that you've you've actually gone, yeah, I've been thinking this for a long time and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change it to something else? That's putting it on the spot, but... Can you think no, no, of something no. that you've actually gone from being a fan of one thing and then say, "No, I'm going to go this way instead"? Yeah, there's probably two
1: tools that that I learned through reading um, and and that really changed my thinking. And this is kind of where that that um, I, I used to think of the counselling model and and I used red brain, blue brain to talk to one on one with a person and say, "Look, you know, this is how you're going to go." blah, 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 and, and how you're thinking and, and you're wiring and firing your brain, blah, 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 and you want to get into a blue brain space where you're changing your focus. One of the things that, that I came across, which was in a book called Crucial Conversations, was the dialogue model. Now, they're kind of interrelated. This is the beauty about the dialogue model. Have you heard of it? No. Tell me. So the dialogue model is basically, if you think about dialogue, so the two of us are talking right now, we're throwing information verbally into a pool, right? right. And so we can both hear it. They call it the blue pool in the model. anyway so you've got this blue pool in the middle and then on the outside you have um something called safety goes around the ring so if we feel safe in a conversation we'll continue to have that conversation and and not you don't feel look like you're threatened i'm sorry the
0: pool to get bigger because we've got a safety zone around the outside
1: yeah we can talk about anything okay all right we can talk about anything because there's safety and we feel comfortable we both feel comfortable the moment that safety is a little bit yeah, not quite right for either one of us and this is where sometimes those early triggers they say oh, I've got a bad feeling about this person something about you makes me feel uneasy suddenly that safety becomes an issue
0: doesn't have words so
1: it's just got a feeling it's a gut correct feeling.
0: yeah okay. correct
1: and the next part of the model is, is basically what's happening in my head or the conversations that's happening in my head so it goes like this I see or hear something so I've seen and heard what you're saying mm-hmm. I tell myself a story yeah, I feel a certain way, and then I act. Okay, so you tell
0: yourself so, a story, you feel a certain way, and then you act. So is if, there if you, any poise there that we sort of work out whether how whether you're feeling is the right way to feel?
1: Or it's, I think it's the story you talked about creating a space. That yeah, story bit the story is the key is, piece in a conversation. So if we think about mental health, I use this a lot where yeah. I'm talking about parents, and this is where things change for me from looking at it as an individual counselling model. And then I started to realise the other person in the conversation or the people around you are, are dictating, well not dictating necessarily, may dictate how you'll end up feeling and acting in those conversations that are happening around you. So I'll give you an example, right? So let's say me, I'm born in South Africa like I was. My dad's a you know old school kind of bloke. If you were seen crying, you get the old, I oh, suck it up, princess, you know, don't be a yep. baby, you know, big boys don't cry, all that stuff. So I see and hear that. It computes up here. I know in the future, and then, you know, my memory will say, hey, you cry next time. Dad didn't like that, so I won't have I won't conversations about yep. I won't do that again. Now, I'm outside years, my safety zone then. Correct. And this is, again, where the influence of other people, I was talking to a guy the other day in America, and we we're talking about exactly this thing where we we're saying, you know, the stigma out there is that guys still say, oh, you know, they see it as a sign of weakness when you show emotion as a bloke. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about how does that happen, and when we use this dialogue model, we go, well, you know, in the past, one of the guys shows emotion and the whole group says, oh, what a wuss, you know, what a blouse, blah, 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 and then so they belittle him or her, and, you know, effectively it, it creates an element of fear just in, in that conversation piece. So that dialogue model is so important around, what story am I telling myself? Because if you're in that group and you're feeling emotional now, and you know that in the past the other guys have just jumped all over one of the other blokes in the group um, and belittled them, and you know we've all ridiculed well, people. I don't, to, uh, I don't want
0: to be that guy. I'm going to keep keep my mouth shut. And that, that exactly, pool of dialogue then gets smaller and smaller. I guess does it as a safety concern. Gets
1: Correct. Smaller. Correct. No, no one's going to open up in that group, are they? They're, yeah. either, they're either going to talk to someone outside of that group because they, again, the safety aspect is important. So when I run stuff with Kids on um, helping them with mental health and suicide prevention. I want the parents there. I want them to hear this because they're having a massive impact on their kids. Like you know, you're probably old school a bit like me, so we probably still come from that and have that mentality that you don't tend to show emotions as much as you know. Um, no, maybe I'm somebody... the complete opposite. I'm, yeah, I'm okay. I'm, I'm a big salty. So okay, well, yeah. great. That's even better. But uh, you know, there'd be some situations where maybe that is where you, the safety for you might come into it right or, or yeah. i'm not saying it will because we'll be different but no, there's you. sometimes where, where you go mm, okay this is not that time or, or whatever yeah. and no so, you're right
0: there are certain people it's like yeah, yeah i'm not going to show it around them and you're going to get yeah. who those people are too it, it's
1: yeah and that's that storytelling in your head right you're telling yourself a story is this the right group and so even just having that so see you've, you've actually stopped the motion from happening because of who's around you so we we do yeah, filter okay. that And that's why I love the dialogue model because, again, it's about who's around you. If if you do it in front of your mates and people you feel comfortable, again, that safety is there. And I keep going back to that safety Mm. of creating safety. If you create safety with your kids, people that you know you care about and that kind of stuff, they'll come and talk to you. Like I run these sessions at work and then people come up to me, people in their 50s and 60s, and go, you know, I struggled with mental health. I've never told anybody else, but I'll talk to you, Clint because they feel that, you know, I've created safety
0: a safety zone around them when it's just you, sir. Yep.
1: And so, so that was a big changer. I guess I'm trying to
0: th- And the, the language that you're using is beautiful, like the story you're telling yourself. Sounds, make reminds me a lot of Brené Brown's work where she, yes, she yes, talks I'm about the her story it. I'm telling myself is this. Yeah. And then when you start a sentence with that, you're not saying this is how it is. You're saying the story I'm telling myself is it, this. And then she she talks about giving yourself the permission to be vulnerable. And I guess if you have a think about that, if you if you use it as the story I'm telling yourself, and I'm getting mm-hmm. vulnerable, I guess that
1: makes that safety zone bigger, doesn't it, for the other person you're talking to? Absolutely. So, so it's very important because again, I use the, it's a horrible example to use, but I use the Harvey Weinstein kind of scenario. You know, he um, okay. once one woman once one woman came out, amazingly, yeah. all these hundreds of women came out, and you know why? because the first one going creates courageousness in the others. It's, yeah. it's, it's not only creating the courageousness, but it's creating the safety, because prior to that person coming out, there was a safety issue for them, for each one of them individually had different reasons for it. But, you know, they were either fearful of, the, you know, getting jobs, whatever, whatever, yeah. whatever. And so, you know, those a little, and that's why when I run stuff, especially at school level, it's around helping teachers to create opportunities for young kids to have conversations about anything that's bothering them, because then we're creating safety. For me, creating the safety in a young child and then fast forward 30, 40 years, if they've had those experiences and they see it's okay to you treated me badly, Luke. I want to have a chat about that. Let's mm. talk. Okay, you might get pissed off and get angry because the dialogue model kind of says you either get anger, you know, if, if there's safety for you, because I'm now challenging you. Yeah. Because so well, one
0: person's safety zone get bigger and another one shrink. I guess then the entire dialogue shrinks if one of them shrinks, doesn't it?
1: It depends on how you say it. How often do we have the old? Oh, it wasn't what you said; it's how you said it. Yeah. If I'm angry with you, and I look, I've had managers come to me. Oh, you know, I say to them, they say, "Oh, this person's useless or whatever." Let's just use that as an example, right? As a manager, I want to get rid of him, more or you know, and I talk to him about, well, talk to me about what you said to him, and they say, "Oh, I won't tell him he's useless." Okay, but what do you think of him? Oh, I think he's useless. Well, he's clearly How going to know helping? over time. How yeah. is that possibly
0: helping? You've got to be able yeah. to have that conversation. Do you have a, um, I hate the expression difficult conversations. Yep. I just think it's, a, it's, a, it's an oxymoron. It's just such a stupid thing to say because it's somehow you've got to make those conversations a conversation that needs to be had that's coming from a place of love and I'm trying to make it so we have a harmonious place that works better. How do you sort of reframe something like a difficult
1: conversation? Again, I keep going back to if you don't feel safe, it'll be a difficult conversation. So for me... And if you do feel me, safe, what, what,
0: how would you describe
1: the conversation then? It's just an opportunity if, to learn, I guess. If you, if you feel safe, you'll open up more about whatever. But when you talk about being vulnerable, so if, if I feel vulnerable, that's where the safety's gone, right? So mm-hmm. I'm now not psychologically feeling safe about things. Um, it 's even like cyberbullying it 's a funny one. People go, you know wh- why don't they just turn it off? <laughs> yeah. You know that kind of stuff right and, and and the the bottom line is as you know, with the brain it 's about the reward system, the dopamine, and all this kind of stuff as a kid they they were a teen i shouldn 't say a kid a teen more so because they're really worried about um not being accepted by a group and and wanting mm. to feel part of that and again. This is the important part once I learned about the dialogue model, how important being included, being part of a group. There's people who call themselves loners, but they don't really choose that. That's happened because they're feeling scared about being in relationships because they've either been burnt before or there's some kind of fear factor. Again, safety. Safety is such a key part in all of this for me. And, And when you talk about difficult conversations, the reason they're difficult is because there's some vulnerability and some safety issue for one or two of the parties in that conversation. So they tend not to have it the right way. Um, is there, is a, there
0: any words you can use or any way that you can speak that can kind of I know, in, increase the size of that pool and be able to be vulnerable and still have the dialogue?
1: I think it depends on who the audience is. If you're dealing with your own child, I think you've got, a lot more control, as in, especially the children are younger because you know you're kind of the universe and you're you're the font of all knowledge and all that kind of stuff. Um, so being really deliberate about creating the safety, like knowing what I know now, you know, I I look back on my son. My son's in his twenties now, and you know when he was younger, and he did kind of show emotion. I probably wouldn't have reacted the way I do now, and and I'd like to think that I've created safety for him to come to me now and 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 feel comfortable with that. But maybe in my early twenties I probably wasn't that guy. You know you didn't
0: have those tools back then of how to make information.
1: No, out. no. And, and and probably didn't really think of the words carefully of what I'm using and how I'm saying it. Like if he was upset about something and crying over something that I thought was trivial, my my natural response, I oh, get over it, you know, kind of thing. And and didn't really consider the massive impact just those little comments can have on what he ends up being like and, and what his personality becomes like that. You know, it wasn't about being yelling at him or anything like that, but those, those words make a big difference. And when you look at some of those things that, that we do and say as parents, how did we take some, some of that safety away about them talking to us about certain things? Mm. That, that's a key piece around this. So, you know, I think you, you learn love, a lot of those concept,
0: things. Sorry to interrupt, but I love the hey, concept you're right. of having empathetic alternatives. And yes. so to actually hear the person out and be able to say, okay, so I get it. This this is how you're feeling, and this is why you're feeling it. What are some yeah. other ways that we could look at that? And that the whole like the whole idea of reset is that sort of Control Alt Delete. Yeah, you know, yeah. What do yeah. I control? What are my alternatives? And what do I need to get rid of?
1: One hundred percent. I
0: love that concept to sort of say, okay, yeah, I hear. I've, I've got an. Here are some empathetic alternatives, and. Have Uh a think about it. How many people do you go to if you've got a real problem and they will actually stop and listen and then give you an empathetic alternative rather than just fixing your problem
1: or discounting it and saying, toughen up, get over it? Yeah, and a lot of times our reaction is us being in red brain because as a parent, I am look back and (laughs) it's funny because little things, you know, you start to notice those things and you think back even of your own childhood. So I'm an only child. And um, I still remember, like, my parent, my mum was very much about, you know, you always got to look your best no matter what you're doing. Like, if I had to right. just go to the shop, I had to at least, I couldn't be wearing no broken clothes or, you know, it was just, <laughs> and so it's, it's still in still with me, you know, like it just sticks in your head. Your shirt's beautifully ironed today, mate. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. But, you know, my wife still laughs about it because I tell her this story. But, you know, these things are ingrained in us a little bit and, and, yeah. and I still feel wrong if I'm wearing something that's not looking at my best sort of thing. And so... um. You know, I can't kind of have to overcome that a little bit because it, it's not—it <laughs> is what it is. But, um, but th- there's habits there's that come things,
0: with it. When you go over a certain way of thinking, and you've gone over it since you're a little kid, they—they have highways yep. in your brain. You're not—you know—you're not creating new pathways, or even when you do, those highways are still correct. There. And yeah, the, 100%. our brain takes the highways. They take the one, and we remember our memories, and yeah, you know, that stuff's just. Ing- I think I think that's just one of the things. That, yes, that's a part of being me because my mum taught me to be nicked.
1: No, yeah, that's right. That's right. But this is where like the difficulty that. but this is where the difficult. I mean, that's not a nasty thing in any way. No, and, but if, know, it, if it was a negative thing, then that's really exactly. Hard. Exactly. And that's the yeah. point around these kids who are at high risk where if you know the parents are doing nasty things to them or abusing them physically or, or not even abusing them, but you know, abusing mum or, or or one yeah. of the other people in the house kind of stuff. Those things stick with kids. And then because they don't know how to process it, so this is the other thing as you, you'd be aware, you know, the um the prefrontal cortex isn't really fully formed until you're in your like in your twenties. So, mm. you know, a, as a kid, you can't process some of those things. And so, you know, looking at
0: it, it that too, and I've, I've actually taken a lot of the work I'm doing now. And I want to take it into schools, and I'm I'm sure the stuff that you're doing would be magnificent in schools. But if we can teach them while their brains are still developing to create these pathways of of understanding that dialogue model and to create the gap between the stimulus and the response, if we can teach that to them when they're 14, 15, 16, they're the highways we're going to develop. Correct. And they're they're going to have that that curiosity when they go red brain to actually stop and have a look at it. And if we can do that earlier... Yes. We're actually, because your brain develops late so that it can actually adapt to its surroundings.
1: Absolutely.
0: And so they're, they're, Absolutely. it's almost like an upstream way to fix some of that, isn't it? You're fixing yep. problems and then those problems don't happen because you fixed it when
1: the kids were were younger by teaching them those those skills. Yeah. and, and Well, it's not even fixing it. It's just dealing with it better. And, and also yeah. you, you don't allow the accumulation of lots of it happening because what happens is think of bullying, right? A kid will bully someone when they first come into school. There's always one person who's maybe a little bit more aggressive than the rest. Now, usually that kid has actually had problems at home. So this is their outlet, if you like, because they can't, if let's yep. say they're getting, you know, getting treated badly at home, this is the anger coming up, and this is where profiling and all that stuff comes in. You know, if you look at a true profile, most serial killers in America, for example, have either had childhood trauma. Been a single parent where mum treats them really badly and then they get angry. And then the anger is at a woman normally. And so, you know, they fix, they can't obviously treat mum because mum's bigger than them and she can do all this. So they then take it out on other things like little insects and small rodents and all that. And then it becomes a growing thing and that becomes their pattern. And obviously they go and do horrible things. But it's no different with just normal life. If you can't deal with issues, and you lash out at someone else, and then you go, oh, you know, I got a bit of um, a reward out of that. Other kids laughed at me doing stuff, so I feel good, I'm powerful, and I feel, so it's about me now getting reward as the bully. That for, gets reinforced.
0: Being a bully is reinforced. I feel better about
1: being me. Let's do that again. Correct, correct. And so 100%, we talk about conversations that we have at school level. It's about calibrating behaviour because a lot of times, again, this is with the group stuff, and this is the way I keep saying it changed the way I think about this is when you look at a bully, like I've done investigations of, and I'm talking about adults here, and I'll use a horrible example. We had a guy who was a supervisor. I won't mention the company I worked for, but he was a supervisor in his, I'm going to say, 40s, late 40s, maybe even 50s, and he'd been supervised supervisor for a long time. Anyway, someone put in a complaint that this guy would walk up behind blokes when they were, like, bending over to pick something up and he'd stick his finger in their bottom and laugh about it. Now, it sounds funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds funny, right? Okay. But you go. Yeah, that's not cool. It's not cool. So anyway, that started an investigation. The investigation I took was I then, it was part of a big group, about 40 or 50 people there. So I interviewed every single person and seriously, nearly every person had that experience with this bloke. So this is over a long period of time. There were some blokes that said, look, he did it once. And I tell you, mate, you do that again, you'll you'll lose some fingers, you're right. So never did it to them (laughs) again. Something else out of your ass. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it's a horrible example to use, but it's such a real annoying one because you go, and then you find out there's other people that have had it happen to them for years. There's one particular Asian guy who didn't speak great English. So he he couldn't articulate. And so he'd just giggle. And, and you know, the other guys would see this happen to this bloke time and time again. And no one said anything. No one did anything. And this is that. And that's I that don't feel kind comfortable. of what,
0: what you ignore, you condone, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You, if you're ignoring that as someone else, you are condoning it. And I think that takes some bravery to step up, particularly if that person's in a place of authority. But it's bravery that I think
1: you've got to have. It is, and and also, you know, when the first person, and, and this is where it's so important at a workplace, if someone brings that to you, you can't just ignore it. You have to do something. It's got to be decisive. But, again, if it had been done earlier and people had said, hey, again, there was no safety for them to feel comfortable to do that. Like the company Mm. back then didn't have things in place. I mean, now you've got whistleblower stuff. That's why we have these policies these days to create some of that and force companies to do and think more in that place. It's not okay to have your guys go through this crap. It should happen once. If it ever happens, it should happen once and it should be dealt with and, and it's a calibration process, mate. You know, you're now on a final warning or you're out the door if it's bad enough, obviously. Yeah. I, mean, it's 10, a weird thing.
0: I, I work with companies a lot about culture and there's a <laughs> lot of people that think a lack of conflict and there's nothing bad happening means my culture's okay. That's that's almost the default way of thinking. And go, talking about what you're saying then, if someone's not complaining about guys walking around sticking their fingers up their ass, they just think that they're having fun. Yep. Right. and they think that their culture's all right but there yep. might be half of the people are seeing that as being absolutely horrific but yep. the culture's not safe enough to say something so there's there's that idea that we have to be really really careful that our culture's one that has that that sort of dialogue zone of safety yep. you talked about before and yep. you've got to be able to have that don't you
1: yeah 100% look when when I Get into the group stuff. I normally run in the workplace. I have what I call. So we run through the dialogue model. I explain all that. I run red brain, blue brain. So people, the the where, where red brain, blue brain, and and the dialogue model work so well is understanding when you do go into a red brain that you go. The other part I didn't talk about on the dialogue model it talks about silence or violence. So if 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 silence I feel unsafe, violence again, fight or flight kicks in. So okay. if I feel any kind of again a safety issue. We go to our natural default, which is fight or flight or freeze, I guess, if you want to put it that yeah, way. But most okay. of the time, it's it's fight or flight. So if I don't feel comfortable in the conversation, I will say nothing. This is when we look at those Harvey Weinstein women. They all yep. went, I, I'm not going to have this conversation. I'm not going to bring this up. I'll because get I won't get any more jobs. They'd so they go to silence. The other thing that can happen is people go, I'm not putting up with this crap, and then they Bang. Like, you know how you hear horrible, like even some of the shootings in America where kids have been bullied for long periods of time, yeah. they they just cop it, you know, they're the whipping boy of the school, blah, 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 and then one day they just go bang. Now they're in true red brain violence and go, right, you guys, I'm going to find the ones that did it. And then they go and, you know, systematically do the stuff they do. And, and you know, that's the worst extreme examples of that. But we have how many times that you see that the, the antagonizer has you know, the person that just flips on the day has had, like, if that, if you think of that guy sticking his finger in someone's bum, there might have been a day where this guy just had a hammer in his hand and goes, you know what? <laughs> Here it comes, mate. And I'm, th- I'm thinking about Michael
0: Douglas and falling down. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. That movie. Well, that yeah, was- I do remember oh, that. that was, he just had a <laughs> yeah. whole bunch of things just happening in his day. He's just gone nut. Nah. He's gone out and yeah. taken out the whole town.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a, a great example.
0: It's great a great example, like that, isn't it? Oh, absolutely! A bit like that. I just want to bring us back to because I think one of the the bits of work that you're doing is fantastic about about and it fits in with everything you're talking about is about how how to prevent um, teenage suicide. No, it's not a nice topic of conversation to have, but no, I of think not. I think the way you create that safety zone to have it is really good, and I, I'd like. I'd like you to share with everyone who's listening how you go about doing that in in that sort of situation when you think there's, there's a teenager who you think is at risk of taking their own life with suicide.
1: Yeah, look, there's a number of, I mean, when a person's at that point where they're already thinking those things, they do need to get help. I, the, I know I keep saying, oh, you know, we, we don't want to have one model, but when they really need the help and you're not a true counsellor, and this is where, you know, um, even when I teach people some kind of mental health first aid, the the, the purpose of first aid is to kind of calm them down it's like
0: enough. triage isn't it? You're trying to work creating, out whether yeah whether someone they
1: where they need to go next. Yeah, and and also it's about trying to create time for yourself as the person talking to them. You know, if you're on Lifeline, which is, you know, often what happens, the people calling in. So the fact that they've called in is a great start. But, you know, I was teaching guys not long ago on, on some farms for the company I work for, and they, they're very rural. And when I say rural, there's like no one. They don't see anybody else except their team for anything up to a month at a time because they're so remote. Um, And so, you know, helping them understand how to deal with mental health first aid is, is those key things about having the conversations Calming them down, thinking if if you're calm again, because the other thing that happens, people go, "Oh crap, what if I stuff this up?" You know, well, and then they go. I think
0: that's one of the big issues with "Are You Okay Day," and "Are mm-hmm. You Okay Day" is a wonderful idea. Yeah, but the hassle is that someone what says, next? "Are you okay?" and you say, "No." Yeah, what do I do? <laughs> I don't know what to do now. Exactly, it, that's really really hard, and I, I think you've got to go into a conversation like that saying, "Okay, if." if You've almost. I'm, I talk about doing a pre-mortem, so when when mm-hmm. something go into it, and if they say no, yep. where am I going to go then? And to yep. be able, and I guess what doing that does is creates that zone of safety you're talking about, and the the dialogue pool gets bigger.
1: Correct. If it's someone you know, it's it's a bit easier in terms of um, you know things you can talk common ground stuff. So we can go, hey, you know, think about. So so if, so again. I use the same models again, red brain, blue brain. If I keep myself in blue by asking myself some questions so that I'm going, okay, I can see Luke struggling, what is upsetting Luke? So that's my first thing. I, by me asking that question, I'm pumping my own blood up here. It's like, okay, I've got to think here. I've got to try and help him. I've got to think solution, and I'm yep. using blue brain to, to help me help that person. You know, help me, help you, kind of stuff. It's almost um, a, it'd almost be a good way to use Carlos, wouldn't it? Is like, you know, what would, Cal-
0: what would Carlos say to this person? Is probably yep. a good way to connect those brains and not be, not yes. be as red brain, I guess. To to yes. maybe dissociate it from you
1: talking to the person that you're trying to help to. Yeah. To get that if, bit of if, distance. If, yeah, because if I come from a place of fear that you're going to do something, and I'm in red brain, I. Um, again we talk about how the brain focuses and I'm not using my really good oxygenated blue brain to help you and come up with solutions I'm I'm less helpful than I would be if I went okay like you said Carlos what would Carlos do now me saying that is automatically taking it out of red because I'm trying to think of a solution and I'm yeah. actually calming my breath I'm thinking my way through there's a lot of You know, these things work for a reason about creating the space. Like even little things, when people talk to me and say, you know, what are some of the techniques? It can be anything. You can go, okay. Like with PTSD, I get people even just to say, okay, the moment that thought pops in your brain, unconscious brain pops in, that's the event that you normally think about because, you know, someone pointed a gun at your head or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. I want you to wiggle your toes. That's all you got to do, wiggle your toes. So the fact that you're focusing on wiggling your toes as stupid as it sounds, A, it sounds stupid so you have a bit of a smile on your face, mm-hmm. which kind of changes your dynamic. It also changes that that neurons that were wiring and firing together in that loop you were having before, yeah. making small changes. Ultimately what we want to do is create a, a position where those same neurons that were wiring and firing from the memory of your event, this is the beauty about um, PTSD and stuff too, is the past only exists in your head. It doesn't exist in real and life anymore. either. it's not incredible either. It,
0: it's not no, always exactly. exactly. You're remembering your <laughs> memories, aren't you? So it's it's Correct. not always exactly how it is. There's a, Correct. There's a, a great a great thing, and you, you'd know more about this being a, a mental health professional than I do, but um, they talk about um, building in, uh, what do they call it, counterfactuals. So
1: okay. So building, oh, yep.
0: building in another, well, what's another way to look at it? Now, I heard a story about a girl who had a, a crash on her motorbike And she kept reliving that. And what she did is she decided to relive it in a way that, as she crashed into it, the the bike turned into a unicorn
1: and she flew off.
0: Yep, I I I've got that in my book. Remembered that it was—it's complete bullshit. She'd made it up. But yeah, I use that technique. Merry Christmas.
1: Yeah, I use that technique in my book. It's more focused. I call it you being the director of a movie. So same kind of principle as you just mentioned, where we're focusing on the event. So. If you think about it, and this is why I like using these models because it kind of explains it. That lady that you just mentioned, for her, prior to those changing that or using that technique, she was having that same memory, wiring and firing together and creating a pattern and it was taking it to a bad place. There's a highway in her brain that's just getting laid down every time she thinks it. Correct, correct. And then once she's decided whatever triggered her to focus on doing things in a more deliberate way, now she's using blue brain, she's not using red. So when that thought pops in, she's slowly going, okay, this would be my normal response, which is all these things over here. Mm -hmm. But now that I'm changing a little bit, it loosens the way it went. So it starts off the same. I'm having the accident. I'm now changing it a little bit. So instead of wiring tight like I was thinking the way it actually happened or the the way way it it could be. And then she breaks it up and breaks it up. And the more she does it, slowly it doesn't become as you know, it, it happens less frequently, firstly, because one of the things I also do is a thoughts diary. I get people just to do a thoughts diary. It's just analysis okay. work. Anything that gets you into blue brain is like analysis work is a blue brain function. So it forces you to change. And so I say, okay, you've had the event. Every time it pops in your head, all the way to do is write down time and that you had them, the thought. That's it. Nothing wow. more. That's the first week. Okay. So we look at, and then ultimately and we- And that we, wanders we, from red into blue brain. It, it switches it just like- wiggling your toes or I get you to centre and stand up and think about your breathing and just think of where your shoulders are. And so, again, anything that interrupts it but focuses in a good way, this is where drinking booze isn't going to help you because it's not going to change the experience because you're just masking it, right? So this is a different way of doing that. So as long as the techniques are slowly breaking those things for you, dealing with the trauma, that's why I think medication, you know, kids and people go on medication too early and for too long when they've got trauma to deal with. They're not dealing with the trauma. They're dealing with the pain and the feeling of it, and this just, you know, makes them all feeling good about life, but it's masking mm. the actual problem. So dealing well, there's with there's it. science on that too, that, you know, just exercise. Yeah, that
0: that thing you're talking about, about it being tight,
1: exercise
0: mm-hmm. loosens that. Of exercise course it does. And it, it's shown to be just as effective as most antidepressants and stuff. I'm not saying don't take antidepressants and stuff because some people Yeah, no, no, I agree, I agree. It helps a lot. But there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the actual exercise does it and does it more permanently. Yep. Um, so, just by loosening that connection you're talking about, it's a-
1: Yeah, there's lots of techniques we can use. Exercise is one, you know, like I, I, I always talk to people about little things like saying, why do you think that people that have a dog can live 10, 10 years longer than others? Or well, one, your oxytocin levels go up. So, understanding all these different things and how they can help you. Is is a great way. You know, we talk about unconsciously incompetent. If you didn't know that stuff, I'm not saying go get out and get a dog, but you know, you might be a cat person or want to take the no, kids but to the zoo.
0: Or... You, you brought up oxytocin, and that that's an amazing one. We also look back at things like childhood events, and if if you have an unhealthy relationship with oxytocin, so when you're a kid, oxytocin is your cuddle hormone. You get it when you when you you know do around someone you love when you hug your pet. Yeah, but if when you're a kid you cried out and you, because it's part of your stress response as well, I'm stressed, you get produced oxytocin. If you didn't yep. get the hug and you didn't get felt better and you got yelled at for being upset, you're mm-hmm. going to have a different response to oxytocin later on in your life
1: and that's a really uh-huh. hard thing to try and, try and get around. Yeah, and but, it's, it's yeah no, the, the other thing like having worked in law enforcement is too is, you know, when there's clear studies that show you would rather have crap care giving than zero. Right. So, so if your parents are nasty to you as a kid, we used to take kids out of people's homes because the parents are just not great people to be around. The kids still want to go back to them, even though they've been abused, they've been physically abused, sometimes sexually abused. Yeah. They'd rather have that crap caregiving and than love. zero. And, and and you know, unfortunately that creates all kinds of issues later on in life with, with people's relationships because then they see, like, you, you go why would someone stay with someone who's beaten them up? You know, I'm talking yeah. about domestic violence and stuff yeah, and having exactly. to deal with that as a cop, right? And so part of that becomes that they don't realise that's the pattern that they've picked up over their early life and so that's what they see the world is. Like you said, you know, we, we think everyone thinks like us, but when you see these patterns like, you know, um, if you don't have those experiences, you can't necessarily put yourself in that way. That's why people who've had those experiences and come out and talk about that and can share it with somebody who's also vulnerable... And see the other problem is when people are vulnerable, they don't have big circles of friends. They don't have those conversations, so they just go in their own heads. And this is the only conversations we have is up here. So you know, it's there's a number of things we need to look at when it comes to this issue because it it is complicated. But there's also a lot of simplicity to the complication, if that makes sense. Where I think when you're, one of
0: those it's just you know you're talking about having that conversation in your head. You've got to have someone in your tribe who you can ring. There Has to be someone there who will give you that kind of empathetic alternatives, and I, I yeah. I'm not harping on about that, but I just love that oh, 100. Having 100%. empathetic alternatives, and if you're someone you know, who, and you think that's happening to one of your friends, reach out. Yeah, reach out and have those empathetic alternatives. Don't just don't just say yes, yes. You're the victim. It's terrible. Don't just bully them into your way of thinking. Actually, stop and have a think about it, and mm-hmm. know, get in that blue blue brain state. And yep. get them in there too, because we need that safety of a tribe, don't we? And I think loneliness 100%. is one of the biggest blights we've got on our society now—that people just have aren't connecting. And you've kind of—it's almost that Ralph Waldo Emerson idea: is to have a good friend, you've got to be one.
1: Oh, a hundred percent. One of the biggest things I used to deal with people in, in who on work cover. Um, I worked as an injury management consultant for a while, and you know, one of the key things I used to work again using the group is guys especially blokes we don't tend to reach out to our mates so someone let's say someone's injured themselves at work they just leave Luke alone at home then i talk to luke because i'm dealing with him in terms of his rehabilitation i said have you heard from anybody at work oh not really we used to go out for beers all the time then you talk to the mates who they go oh we just thought he'd want to be by himself and and, and want to you know and so that we we, we kind of don't connect we don't um often do it like we should and so I encourage them say hey let's get him down here for a morning tea that's all and you know you can see the eyes light up when I'm dealing with the guy you know he's down he's feeling he's already got an injury it's about connection again and getting them involved and say hey we don't give a shit if he doesn't do anything when he comes to work let's bring him in our tribe
0: we want you here anyway
1: Correct, even if you're just talking crap in the background or, hey, you're actually pretty smart, you know your stuff, you're not going to do the physical side, maybe you can teach the new kids some stuff or whatever it is, yeah. you know, reintegrating them in and, and and we think we have to have return-to-work plans where, you know, the person's got to be – sometimes it's just their knowledge, getting knowledge out of people and stuff like that, thinking outside, but having them included and talking and, and feeling part of it again is such a key part because the, the worst thing is they, they can spiral when they sit at home because one, they go, no one's called me, so now they start to think Oh, they not oh, like me, they to-
0: i guess that's where you have got to almost learn how to do cognitive behavioral therapy yourself don't you? like what <laughs> yeah, stuff, oh, what, lots of what, things what stories yeah. am i making up here um yeah there's a great book it's a tiny little book it took, takes like an hour to read by a guy called chris helder and it's called useful beliefs okay and it, it touches on what you're talking about there about if you're telling yourself stories you got to tell yourself stories that help yep yeah. and i reckon that you know, going back to your habit stuff you were talking about as well, you've got to catch yourself telling yourself stories that aren't helping. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I think that that sort of cue is probably a really good way to get you into blue brain. It is because,
1: because you, well, the, the thing about human beings are the only person that knows what someone else is thinking is that someone else. Yeah. Now we can. We, we all guess stuff, right? Oh, Clint's angry or you can see some obvious things, obviously, but there's times where we don't know. We don't know. Like there's been hundreds of times as, as a HR person where people have misconceived stuff, like sending a text. Someone sent one one day when I was working in healthcare and it was all in capitals. It was when the Nokia phones were still yeah. around. Anyway, this particular person said, at me? <laughs> why are they yelling at me? Was going to quit. Was going to quit. This is a senior nurse was going to quit because her manager said that. We get the manager and I have a chat to her. She goes, I don't know how to do little text, little um, letters, right? So it's just a. Stories a much, we're telling ourselves. I I, I reckon that,
0: that's a, a really good way to, to sort of. To end it talking about that blue brain and red brain because if if we get really deliberate about the stories we tell ourselves
1: i, I think yeah. we're much more likely to stay in the blue brain and i think that planning because one person asked me how, how do you um you know what's the best piece of advice you can give to get someone who maybe is feeling suicidal or feeling blah blah blah, blah. and and for me it's about them wanting to see a change so asking questions of am i happy where i am because Regardless of what we do, we can talk about people helping people. I cannot help you, no matter how great a psychologist or psychiatrist or whatever I am, if you really don't think there needs to be a change. The, the difficulty with this stuff is we become addicted to, to how we feel on stuff. So some of these chemicals, we talked about, you know, um, different chemicals in the body, so cortisol and stuff, if, if that's all we've ever experienced, we think that's what we need. So we kind of crave it. We and so, so breaking the pattern isn't like, you know instinctively drug addicts know this isn't good for me mm-hmm. on on a true logical level they go this is not good for me Cognitive but why can't they break it?
0: it and they've just got to go one way or the other and work out a way to justify it
1: yeah so however we get people to be able to go you know what i'm not happy in this place right now i've got to change something you you know when when i read even stuff on people who've who've come out of trauma and and had bad experiences you know frankl's a great example of the, of that stuff where mm-hmm. Because he didn't focus on what was happening, but he was focusing on, they call it hope. You can call it whatever you like, but it's a belief that things can get better and I have a solution for it. And when you start thinking that way, things will happen. You'll make things happen because it's kind of a mini plan in a positive way, right? Whereas yeah. if you're stuck here, you just get stuck. So people have all things. you red brain red all brain, day. Just pouring petrol on that red brain fire. 100%. So, you know, changing those things is a key part of it about I'm not happy here, what can I do? I was talking to a lady who was a domestic violence victim and she's also an Islander. And we talked about the reasons behind um, what kept her with her husband for so long, even though he was abusing her and you know beating the crap out of her, unfortunately. And she said, you know, the stigma of being an Islander, um, again, think about safety of her mm. not doing what she, what instinctively she knows she should do. But, you know, the tribe frowned upon divorce, the 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 husband's seen as you know the the kind of big hero of the place and, and she you know she's subservient to that and all that so all those things come into the equation of why she was stuck but then I kind of went well what happened to make you just go one day now nah. she said you know I just I sat down and I weighed it up and I go what do I really want from life what do I want to be and she you got into blue brain. She got, got into blue brain and
0: off she went. Yeah, wow. Exactly,
1: and that and that was you know a really good story because you can see it often when I see people who make great inroads and changes. And when I've done my counselling work over the years, that's where you can just see. Oh, wow, we've had that shift, and now you know it's okay. Then you know they might have a bit of a relapse and, and still feel some of the things, but if they're starting to break the pattern and they're so focused, and I've seen people change overnight where they've gone from right. I've had enough of this crap. Yeah. And all the other stuff out you know they get into fitness and again there's many ways to the top of the mountain you know you mentioned about exercise if if people change whatever it is like some people go into fitness some people find religion you know mm-hmm. one guy found Jesus and that was the thing that worked yeah. for him and, Jesus and
0: lots of
1: stuff <laughs> and you know Buddha at all like it doesn't matter which it yeah. is there's many ways to the top but again you see the shift and when the shift happens that's when the magic really happens and I think um you know, getting people to, to understand that they, they've got more control over that is such a key piece in this stuff. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And just just being aware that I'm in that state is is probably the
0: the first thing, isn't it? I'm, I'm in a red brain yep. state. Okay. All of a yep. sudden just the awareness of that is is getting you blue. But yep. um, if anyone is having issues and having lots of thoughts of suicide and stuff, you can always ring Lifeline on 13, 11, 14. Um, I'm sure a lot of people would get hold, like to get hold of your book. Where can we find?
1: Yeah, so it's called Lighting the Blue Flame. So it's Lighting the Blue Flame. It's definitely available on Amazon. Correct. It is. Um, that's it there. Um, yeah. It, if, you, if you Google it, you can get it most of the big online places. Obviously, we're in Australia, but um, my publishers are in the UK, so um, it's a little bit tougher to get them really quickly to you aussie and us but if you get online it's also on kindle so yeah amazon's probably a good place to start
0: clint it's been fantastic talking to you your your insights you. into that are just are just awesome and you know if we can get you know more people to start using that blue brain and using it using it in the right way i think the world's <laughs> yeah. gonna be a slightly better place but i thank you for the work you're doing the world is definitely a better place because you're in it.
1: thanks for having me mate. i feel the same way about your stuff so all good pleasure buddy